0: Thank you. Well, Mildred Mildred, the church gossip and self-appointed arbiter of the church's morals, she kept sticking her nose in other members' private lives and Church members were unappreciative of of her activities, but feared her enough to maintain their silence. She made a mistake, however, when she accused George, a new member, of being an alcoholic after she saw his pickup uh, truck parked in front of the town's only bar one afternoon. She commented to George and others that everyone seeing it there would know what he was doing. George a man a few words, stared at her for a moment and just walked away. He didn't explain, defend, or deny. He said nothing. Later that evening, George quietly parked his pickup truck in front of Mildred's house and left it there all night. <laughs> well, one more. And that is, the chil- uh, It's basically this, is I was a little surprised when my son suddenly announced one day after church, I think I'm, be- I'm-, I'm going to be a minister when I grow up. I was shocked a little bit and said, well, why is that, I asked. Well, I figure I have to go to church on Sundays anyway, and I think it'll be more fun to stand and yell than to just sit there and listen. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I hope, that, I hope you got uh, some of these notes that we have, and uh, so uh, that we're going to, I want to use those if I can, uh, so I hope that you will uh, use those in a little bit, uh, but if you've got those, if you don't have it, if you raise your hands, we'll get them to you, if we have some more, do that okay, if you, you need to do that. I want you to turn with me over to Matthew 24, verse 1 and 3. The Lord tells us that his word is forever settled in the heavens. Every time you see a rainbow in the sky, it tells us simply that he never, yes, it does say, it says to us that he will never flood the earth again like he did in the days of Noah. But it also says that he never goes back on his word, what he promised us we can do. He also tells us in the book of Isaiah, he says, My word shall not return unto me void, but it will accomplish what I've set it out to do. His word will always come back. And it will accomplish what he said it would do. I want to I talk to you this morning a little bit about the prophecies of Jesus can be trusted. The prophecies of Jesus can be trusted. I want you to turn to a very familiar passage from over in um, Matthew chapter 24. And I want to read just three verses there. Listen to what it says. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Let's pray. Father, this is an awesome responsibility this morning. And I know that we will be held accountable for what we have to say one of these days. But, Lord, I pray simply, as I always have, that the words of my mouth and the manifestation of my heart, heart, Father, would be open to you. That you would accomplish through me what you want to accomplish. That we bring glory and honor into your name. And, Lord, I pray that if there's one person here that does not know you, that they will come to that place. That they'll want to renew that relationship. Or that, Lord, that they will, for the first time in their life, give their heart to Jesus. And I ask you uh, to do this in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen. We live in a time in which you cannot believe half the stuff you hear, maybe more than that. And I wonder just as a show of hands, how many people in here have gotten a phone call of somebody trying to steal your money or whatever else and you didn't realize. How many people in there, I just wonder, that's gotten, a, look at the hands, amen. I mean, I've gotten all kinds of those. I even got one where they told me that my grandson was in jail and told me that he was in, uh, in New York. And the crazy thing about it, he'd already come back. He, he, his, his college class had gone, he was graduating from University of Kentucky, and he had gone to New York to visit Wall Street. But he'd come back home. Now, how they how these people find out some of the things they do and how they do it, but this guy did a really good dis, disguising his voice as if he was my grandson. I know that there are people here that have been scammed in our church. And money's been taken from them. I understand that. Uh, we we really got an issue. Uh you know, we've got an issue in this country that we cannot believe what people say there was a time in this country that two men could shake hands and that's all it was needed now we can have an ironclad contract have everybody, every lawyer from here in Washington D.C. to sign it and it not be, mean nothing that it's written upon only 42% and this is a poll that was taken and I don't know how recent this poll was but I'm, I'm, I believe it's probably too old in some ways only 42% have confidence in the government as a whole 35% uh, don't even trust Congress. Only 40% trust the news media, but that, that, uh, the number of days to, uh, that, that, uh, the number uh, drops to 28% when you go to young adults. 33% trust Wall Street, only 26% trust Hollywood. 46% trust their religious leaders. Less than 44% trust the leadership of the president. And I believe that's gone down. And the poll is is outdated, I think, in in many ways. TV, even when it it is revealed as a a lie, they will not own up to it. And how many have tried to be scammed around our country, around this world, of what is happening. How many can remember a time, and this probably goes back before many of you maybe even were born, but how many can remember a time of a man by the name of Walter Cronkite? His closing sign-off of CBS Evening News was, and that's the way it is. His final sign-off was in March the 6th, 1981, 42 years after he began, after 46 years of doing this, 42 years ago, three major wars, the Civil Rights Movement, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., Watergate scandal, and thousands of nightly broadcasts. Every night he spoke to 29 million people, and he spoke with honesty and sincerity and impartiality. He understood the position that he occupied. Because what he felt his job was, was to hold up a mirror to tell and show the public what was happening. He was often identified as the most trusted man in America. Sad to say there are no more Walter Cronkites today. Voices we can truly trust until we don't know what to believe. Instead our world is filled with prognosticators and prediction makers ready to share their opinions. There are 2 million podcasts in our world today, 600,000 journalists, uh, 424-hour news networks, countless ministers all clamoring for your attention as to what is happening today and what will happen tomorrow. And the clamoring is getting louder and louder because all we feel is if we're living in overtime, we feel like there's something that's fixing to happen, and it is. But amidst all this noise, there's one voice that we can trust above all other voices. Amidst the thousands of messages screaming for your attention, there's only one voice that we need to hear, and it can be proven, and that is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible, as we've said before, the only book that predicts the future before it happens is the Bible. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 10, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there's no other. I am God, and there's none like me. And verse 10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things that were not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do as my pleasure. J. Barton Barton Payne's Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecies lists 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament and 578 prophecies in the New Testament for a total of 1,817 prophecies. This encompasses encompasses 8,352 verses out of 31,102 verses. There's 25% or more of the Bible is nothing more than prophecy. How can any preacher stand and say prophecy is not important? I don't know. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then in reality, He is the most important person in your life. Then it is important what He has to say about the future and your future. In the Gospel of Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, it is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Because Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when He answered the disciples. It's a ridge crest east of Jerusalem. I've sat there before and I've looked into Jerusalem. It's a beautiful sight to look at the the, the rock of the dome and the dome of the rock and all that. It is the same spot where Jesus preached. It is the very same spot where he ascended back to heaven. And it also is the same spot, according to Zechariah fourteen four. He will return and put his foot on the same spot, and the mountains going to cleave on the split up to the second coming. I always heard, always heard that there's a that Holiday Inn at one time wanted to go and put a motel on top of that mountain, and I always heard they could not do it because the foundation could not stand because there was a crack from the top of that mountain all the way to the bottom. When we were over there, we had a Jewish, a Messianic Jewish guide. His dad had started the first Messianic church in, in uh, Jerusalem after 1948. And I asked him this question I said, Listen, I've heard a rumor that there was a crack in this mountain all the way from the top down to the bottom. And I said, I want to know, is that true or is that not true? He looked at me and he said, Yes, it's true. That mountain is sitting there, just sitting there, waiting. For what Zechariah says, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half towards the south. It's interesting that many of the slopes of the Mount of Olives today is covered with tombs. Now, if you go by any tomb that you have in Israel, you'll find rocks on top of them. They don't they don't Buy flowers like we do, and decorate the graves. They put rocks on top of them. But leading up that slope that leads up to the the Dome of the Rock, uh, on looking from from Mount Olivet down into that valley and up the road, there's some estimated that there are approximately one hundred and fifty thousand people that are buried there. They say they want to be close at hand when the long-awaited Messiah arrives to enter the eastern gate, which is now sealed up. They're so afraid Jesus is going to come through that gate that they actually sealed it up. That's not going to stop him. The Olivet Discourse is in the second longest recorded message in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount being the first, Matthew 5 being, being the first. The Sermon on the Mount was the public message and the Olivet Discourse was a private message at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry with only his disciples. But the Olivet Discourse occupies more space than any other sermon of Jesus. Many believe that the Olivet Discourse, or the chapter 24 and then Luke 21 and also Mark 13 Discourse, to be the most important single passage of prophecy in all the Bible and is significant because it comes from Jesus himself. Matthew 24 verse 1 introduces it and it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. The Passover week would have fallen in April. Jesus and his disciples had trekked all with crowds of pilgrims from Galilee and everyone felt exuberant. Everyone to get there to have the Passover feast. Everybody felt that way except Jesus. That is everyone except him. Because he'd set his face to go to Jerusalem for this would be his final trip. He tried to prepare his disciples for this impending trauma of his arrest. And you read the scriptures and the gospels and you'll see over and over and over again Jesus tried to tell them that he must go to Calvary, he must die and that he was resurrected. And they didn't believe it. The impending trauma of his arrest, the trial, the torture, the death, the resurrection. But they still didn't comprehend who, and, and who can blame them. A crucified Messiah wasn't part of their worldview at that time. Instead, they were looking forward to sitting at his left hand or his right hand. As it's fulfilled in the Old Testament, commanded that the coming kingdom, at least that's what they thought would happen and that they would throw out Rome. They had walked through the Jordan Valley to Jericho where he had healed two blind beggars. They ascended the Jericho Road hiking towards, towards the backside of the Mount of Olives. And when they arrived at Bethany, and Bethany was one of his favorite places because of Mary and Martha. And you remember when they first came, there was Martha in there that was... Rattling pots and pans, and she was hollering for Mary, 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 Mary. Don't you gonna come in and help? And she finally came in and says, "Mary, don't." And she looked at Mary, and she looked at Jesus, and she said, "Don't you care? I'm in here trying to fix all this supper. Oh, how we get caught up in doing things that the Lord never calls us to do." And he looks at Martha, and he said, "Martha, Martha." And I wonder how many of us he says the very same thing too. Martha, Martha, thou worried, and you're cumbered about many things. But Mary has chosen that better part. And what was the better part? To sit at Jesus' feet. See, some of us have got so many balls in the air doing all this stuff like this, and we're just nervous and we're, we're tore up all the time, and anybody asks us something, we, we get, we, you know we, we'll bite their head off. Because we're doing a lot of dead works. What's dead works? Dead works are things that God never called you to do. And then you wonder, why in the world am I so overwhelmed with all this stuff? Because Jesus, and, and one of the ways you can tell that you're overcome not doing the Lord's work is because Jesus said, come to me, all you that labor and heavy laden. I'll give you rest and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So before you say, well, I'm just trying to serve the Lord, and I'm trying to do this, whatever, you better understand, Jesus said his burdens were light. And so he looks at her and he said, Martha, Martha, thou art cumbered about many things. But Mary has chosen that better part. What is the better part? To sit every day at the feet of Jesus and listen to what his word says. That's what I've learned. I've learned to take verses and put them in my pocket because, you know, the Bible says to us in, in, in the book of Hebrews that bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. And, and so what do I do? I take these. Whenever, and when I have a thought and I know it's not the right kind of thought or I'm looking at something I shouldn't look at or whatever else, I pull these verses out and the first thing I start doing, I start reading these verses and reading these verses. And guess what? It goes away. Because you see, the Bible also teaches us this. It teaches us simply that faith comes, because the opposite of this is faith. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, what is, what is, what is that? But here's the thing you've got to understand. The hearing is not past tense. It is present tense. I mean, I hear it right then. i got to put that word, and God's word is stronger. He said heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word will never pass away is what he said to us. And so he said, Martha, but it was a place that Jesus could go. They had a room fixed for Jesus in the back that he could get away. There was times, the Bible tells us there were times that our Lord didn't have time to eat. They were pressed on every side. So he could go and he could just get away. And I'm sure that Lazarus was there. And I'm sure that Lazarus probably looked at him I don't know how many times and said to him simply, you know, said to him simply this, I want to thank you, Lord, for raising me from the dead. I wonder if Lazarus really said that, though. He may have been a little upset with him. He may have been sitting there with him and saying, Why? I was in heaven. Why would you bring me back, you know? But this was a place that Jesus could go and and just get away from things. Mary anointed his feet with oil, and the house was filled with that fragrance. At this point, our Lord has less than a week to live. Then it's Sunday, and Sunday, when Jesus, the guest, awakens on Sunday morning, they trudge up the east side of the Mount of Olives, and and there was there, Jesus asked his disciples to fetch him a colt. And the crowd would have called out to crucify him, and and, and, and soon reject him as a stark contrast for how they welcomed him by singing, Hosanna, the son of David. And Matthew 21, 9 tells us, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, about how that's going to change in a few days? And they're going to say crucifying, crucifying. It's now, and, and, and you know, he, it's Sunday, uh, he it's a Monday now comes and he enters the temple briefly and he returns back to Bethany and now Monday morning Jesus curses a fig tree because it had no fruit on it he's looking for fruit in your life you Now, the Bible says that we all stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ one of these days everybody you would say wait a minute I thought if I came to Jesus I'd have no that's the great white throne judgment that's for people that don't know Jesus I don't want to be in that judgment because those people are going to stand there on their own without Jesus being their advocate. But how wonderful it is to know that in the great white throne, uh, in, the, in the Bema seat, the, the judgment of Christians, it's one in which that we go there and, and, and it's one of a reward. Will there be loss? Yeah, there'll be loss. There's somebody, because the Bible says in First Corinthians chapter 3, there's some people, gonna, their works are going to burn up because what they did, they did it for their own goals, their own appreciation, their own... So everybody talking about what a wonderful person they are. And God's going to say, mm-mm, that, that, that doesn't fit. He tells us simply in the Word, he says, that you have this treasure in earthen vessels. And then it says this, that the power may be of God And not of us What's he saying? Whatever you do Make sure that God gets the credit for it He gets the praise for it That's what he's saying And so it's still Monday Monday but Jesus goes in. But anybody that doesn't bear fruit, and what's fruit? Well, turn to the book of Galatians. What is the fruit? The, the fruit of the Spirit. What is love, joy, peace, long suffering, goodness, meekness, self-control, in which there is no law against? There's nine of them. But later that day, he causes a stir in the temple when he overturns the money tables at the money changers. The chief priests and the scribes hate him and they're angry enough to try to kill him. And Monday evening he returns back to Bethany with Mary and Martha. It is now Tuesday. That brings us to Matthew 24, one. Tuesday morning Jesus returns to the temple and there he delivers a blistering rebuke of the Jerusalem leaders. Which my sermon last week was in Matthew 23 when he calls them hypocrites. And he says, woe unto you seven times. But understand, these were people he loved. And this was where he said. One of the things our church has been accused of is, and I get emails sometimes of people because we've taken a stand against homosexuality and other things. And they look at us and they say, Well, you're, I thought Jesus loved everybody. He does. He loves everybody. And the most loving thing that anybody can do is when somebody's doing something they shouldn't be doing, is tell them, hey, man, what are you acting like a nut for? In fact, the Bible says that over in 1 John. It says, if you see your brother sin a sin that's not unto death, in other words, God doesn't kill him, you're to go to him and say, man, why are you acting like this? And so the world's not going to go along with us. Hello? Hello? It's just not going to go along with us. If we're going to live for Jesus, if we're going to do what Jesus wants to do, guess what? The Bible says that there are many that came to Jesus for a while, but they went away because, because of tribulation or, or persecution. And why does it say those things came? It says for the word's sake. See, if you're a Christian and and you just go along with the world, when the Bible says, love not the world, nor the things of the world, you can just go along and, boy, everybody just think you're great. Until the Lord comes. And he starts taking you down, asks, why did you do this and why do you do this? That's the difference. Sometimes we have to stand on the word. And when we do, it's not going to be popular. And so Jesus, you know, Jesus had a violent argument, seven woes, hypocrites. And Jesus spoke of unrighteous vindication and anger. But understand, these were people he loved. It says in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus looked at Jerusalem. He said, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you as children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You won't see me until you see him when I come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In our culture, most believe that Jesus taught to love everybody, but they think that if you try to confront someone who's doing wrong, that's not love, that's not true. It's still Tuesday... And the last thing Jesus did before he left the temple was to sit opposite the temple of the treasure and watch as people gave their tithes and offerings over in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, 44. And it said, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasure, and he saw how the people put money into the treasure, and many who were rich had put much. And the one poor widow came and threw in two mites into which was a quadrant. And so they called the disciples to himself and said to them, "Assuredly, I say unto you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, but all that she had, the whole livelihood. And you know what? There are a lot of people, I've heard sermons on this. People preach this and they say, boy, you've got to give and give and give until it hurts. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that at all. You know what he's saying? He's saying that any group, any church, any minister, anybody that takes advantage of poor people, You're going to pay for it. You cannot treat those less than you are like they're they're nothing. You just can't do it. And we as a church, we've tried to feed, we've tried to love, we tried to do all the things we possibly can, possibly. And I know many times we fail. You know. So Tuesday draws to a close. There's only three days left until. Jesus is crucified. Jesus departed from the temple. And and, and this is a big deal. Jesus departed from the temple. It symbolizes the withdrawal of God's presence from that sacred place. This is a big deal. Then in Matthew 24, he sadly descends the staircase, leaving the Mount of Olives where his people should have received him. And this is when the disciples remarked to Jesus in Mark 13, what a magnificent stones the buildings were. And I'm sure they were. Now, I gave you in your, in your packet there, some, I gave you something that was uh, the temple, God's dwelling place. You can look at that. We got it up here. And, and so if you notice this, it says, th- these are the temples that, that were built. You got the, the Mosaic uh, tabernacle, that was in fourteen forty. That was Moses and them going through the wilderness. Then you got Solomon's temple. That's next, uh, and, and you know, then even the, what, uh, the Queen of Egypt, the Queen of Sheba, came to see this temple that was so unbelievable. And then you got then you got Zerubbabel's temple that was built in five twenty BC by Ezra, and the and the the prophets wept. Over this temple because they didn't think it was as as magnificent and great as Solomon's temple. Then you've got Herod's temple that took thirty years to build, and and the, uh, and that was in twenty BC seventy AD. This is the temple that Jesus is going to predict that's going to be destroyed. And then you got the tribulation temple that is already in the works of being. The Jews have already got all their stuff: the menorah, the the. The, the, uh, they say they know where the Ark of the Covenant is Only thing that was keeping them back from doing this Was, was the red heifer And there's some guy in Texas Supposed to raise five And they supposed to have come and got them and brought them back But the red heifer, they, when they would slaughter it They'd mix it in And the priest, what was keeping them from the priest Then had to take this and be anointed with it So he could then minister That was what was holding them They've got the red heifer, they've got everything But when will that take place? That's going to take place during the tribulation. The seven years that we're not here. And then there's going to be a temple set in the millennial temple which will be set in in, uh, the thousand years of Jesus and that's in Ezekiel 40, 48. But I want you to notice this. This last one here, this last one right here at the bottom, you see that? There's no temple, is there? Why is there no temple? Because the very thing that God has wanted to do all, all of our existence is right there, and it tells us over in Revelation chapter Revelation chapter twenty one and twenty twenty two. And listen, listen what it says: For I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There you go. Amen. So why did the disciples at that moment tell Jesus to look at this magnificent temple? Maybe it was because of the barrenness of the inward lives that they had been exposed to. Their spiritual lives were empty, but they were proud of the temple. Or perhaps this was just a moment they wanted to distract Jesus from the emotional exhaustion that they had gone through. We may not know what the disciples were thinking. But we know what Jesus was thinking. Jesus responded to the disciples in awe of the building of the temple by sitting with them on the Mount of Olives. They've already crossed the Kidron Valley. They're already on the Mount of Olives. They're looking back at their temple. They're saying there. They're asking these questions. And Jesus says in verse 2, he says, Do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then he says in verse 3, Now, as he said, on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him and privately saying, Tell us, when will all these things be? When will all these things be? And uh, tell us when all these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's what he says. This is Jesus' most important lesson about the end times of history. And from where we sat on the uh, and, and where we sat on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, they had an incredible view of Jerusalem. Where they sat at. His words are breathtaking because he intended to show us what's he want us to see out of this—the infallibility of the Word of God. I wish I could get that over to you. I preached a message here—I don't know how long ago—about Jesus in the boat. You know, and and the disciples are going across the lake, and and uh, the water's coming. They got a storm, and these are fishermen, man. These are guys that know what to do with a boat in the water, and they're about to drown. Where's Jesus? He's sleeping in the boat. <laughs> He's asleep in the boat, and they're about to drown. And what's Jesus? They they go to Jesus, and they wake him up, and they say, "Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? We're about to drown here." You know, we're about to drown, Lord. And and the Lord gets up and he just says, peace, be still. And the waves just goes down and the wind quits blowing. And they look at Jesus and they say, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the waves, the sea obeys him. And then what does Jesus do? He jumps them. He gets angry at them. Now, why did he get angry at them? Did he get angry at them because of the fact that they had, because of the very fact that they had, uh, you know, they were afraid? No, if I'd have been out there, I'd have been, mm, I don't know what i had been doing. His old boy said, probably marking my laundry. I don't know. I mean, it would be, you know, we would be scared to death. You know? What would you say? Well, why did Jesus get angry at them? Because he told them at the very first Come, let us go unto the other side. He didn't say, let us go to the middle of the lake and we'll go down. He said, come and let us go to the other side. He does the very same thing with you and I. He gives us a word. He tells us what he's going to do. And then we don't believe him. We don't believe what? The word of God said. See, it's one thing to know the word of God. It's totally different to take the word of God in my life and use it as a tool within my life. Where the word of God really stands out. what it has an effect upon me. So he makes a stunning prediction about the future in verse 2. He, he predicted the utter destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And that's what happened. The whole temple came down. His words are breathtaking because he intended to show us the infallibility at him as a prophet. You can trust what he said when we can't trust anything else. The news, the, the politician, everything. brother, we can trust this whole book right here. This will be fulfilled in a letter that... No historian can refute. And it says, it says this over in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Listen to this. It says, after 62 weeks, this is the 70 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Why did Jesus die? Did he die for himself? No, he died for you and me, not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. He's outside the city. He's being cut off. He's being crucified. But what happens with this? The city's being destroyed. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war desolation is determined. This will be fulfilled in a letter that no historian can refute. He also predicted this in Matthew twenty-three verse twenty-three verse uh, thirty-eight. He says, "See, your house is left to you desolate." Even at his entry into Jerusalem, he had said in Luke 19, 42 through 44, he said, if you'd known even you especially in this day and I, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, enclose you on every side, and level you and your children within you for the ground, and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, here it is. You know, he said, You're not one stone upon the other. He said, They'll take one stone after another. Well, listen to what Josephus, the historian, said. He said, Fast forward to AD 70. He said, Responding to a Jewish insurgency throughout Judea, the Roman general Titus built large wooden scaffolds around the walls of the temple buildings and a tactic never before used. He piled the scaffolds high with wood and other flammable items and set them on fire. The intense heat weakened. The temple structure And the Romans were able to dislodge the giant stones Prying them off one by one And catching them into the valley below Afterward soldiers sifted through the rubble Left on the temple site To retrieve any gold That had melted in the smoldering ruins And all that remained on the site Was flattened down to the retaining walls Just as Jesus had predicted And Jesus said Do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone, not one stone, not one stone will be shall be left here upon another that shall be thrown down. Why dwell on this historical moment? Because one of the keys to understanding Jesus' words about the world at the end of history is to understand that his prophecies were fulfilled exactly as he said they would be. They're precise. The destruction of Herod's temple allows us to verify the accuracy of the words of Jesus spoken that day. Thus, we can fully depend on the accuracy of the rest of what Jesus is telling us. Thus, we can fully depend on the future of what, the, what the, Jesus said about the future. If he said this and it's true, then we know this is other can be true. The disciples then asked Jesus two questions. Verse 3. They ask him the simplest saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so then he proceeds to tell them in, 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 in Matthew 24, verse through, 4 through 8. I won't read all of it. I'll read some of it. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceive you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and I will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass and the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. The secret to understanding the Lord's prophecy is found in the final word. Verse eight sorrow. The Greek word is odin, which literally means birth pains, contractions that begin and and pain increases at the birth, and and you know women know what I'm talking about. You ask them how far are the pains apart? Ten minutes, you know. Nine, eight, seven, and all of a sudden, women, You got a baby. The Apostle Paul understood this. He said over in First Thessalonians chapter 5, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not stand. It is also interesting that Jesus describes what he describes... What he describes in, what Jesus describes in Matthew 24 is pictured in Revelation 6. And in other words, here's what I'm saying Revelation 6 starts the, the tribulation time. But when you look at this one right here, right here, here's what it says. If you follow this line, when you get home, take this. And on one side, it's got what Jesus said on Matthew here. Over here, it's got what Revelation 6 says. You're going to find that it's identical. What Jesus said, this would happen, this would happen, this would happen. That's exactly, exactly what Revelation 6 says happened. In order. In order. Man, I I, I mean, that blows my pants off. I don't know about you. Now... It has been interesting because we have always thought of the, you know, when we get into the the tribulation, we've always thought of the the three judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowl judgments, and what we all what we've always thought of those judgments as them being sequential. In other words, you got seven years of you got seven years of the, uh, of the seal judgments. And then at the end of that seventh year, the seventh year actually, or the seventh year actually turns into the uh, the trumpet judgments, and then the seventh year of the trumpet judgment turns into bowl. And so they're sequential. That's the way we've always looked at. I don't think that's the way it is. And I'll tell you why I don't believe that. Because if you go and read Revelation six, which is part of the Sildra, at the end of the, it talks about the day of the Lord. So what's it saying to us? Here's what it's saying to us. And if you take this, take this one right here. You can see. Yeah, there you go. I've got the scriptures written on the side here. And in other words, the seal judgments are probably going to take the full seventh years. Seven years. The, the, the trumpet judgments may be a year and some weeks or something like that. Or maybe just a year and a few months or something. The bold judgments are going to be a time of just maybe days or even hours. But here's the thing about it. They progressively, no matter what it is, they get worse and they get worse and they get worse and they get worse. Let me tell you something. You don't want to be here when that happens. You just don't. So Jesus... the sealed judgment seemed to last for seven, entire seven years, while the Revelation 6.17 is the day of the Lord, second coming, then the trumpet comes the last six months, the bold judgment for days. But need to understand that just like birth pains, that get worse and worse, the tribulation gets worse and worse. In Matthew 21 and verse 22, here's what it says, For then there will be great tribulation. And here's the thing. Some people want to take it back to... A.D. 70, and say, well, that's when that happened. At the But listen to what it says. There's a great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. There's never been a time like the seven-year tribulation. Now go on to the next, uh, uh, unless, and here it is. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh could be saved but for the elect's sake for those days to be shortened. What's happening in our world today? All this is laying the down the 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 groundwork for these seven years. So then, what Jesus said about the temple being destroyed has already happened. Yes, that's the remainder of the Lord's prophecy won't be triggered until the church is removed from the rapture. Wilbur Smith, a prominent scholar, called the olive discourse the most neglected discourse of Jesus Christ. In other words, the signs that Jesus promised are like birth pains. They're occurring now and they're increasing in frequency and pointing towards the rapture of the church. But the moment the church is gone, those signs will become more severe and will throw the post-rapture world of the tribulation into a state of seizures and spasms such as, as we see described in the book of Revelation. In fact, the sign of Matthew 24 to live up perfectly with the seals of Revelation 6 that's uncanny how accurate the Word of God is. Uncanny. When Christ comes in the air for His church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. When Christ comes for His church, it tells us every single Christian on earth will be removed. And with the Christians, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is the restrainer of all evil, at that point all hell will break loose. And the signs Jesus gave in Matthew twenty-four, four, fourteen, will accelerate to a tribulation speed. So, what is it? What what does it all have to say to us? Three things. Number one, Jesus wants us to teach about the future. Number two, Jesus wants us to transform us into our future. He wants to transform us into our future. Number three, Jesus wants us to trust Him with the future. So when we see all this stuff, I, I don't know about you, but I, I will tell you this. I felt, I felt in the last year, two years, such an oppressed feeling across this country. People are scared to death, they're worried to sick. And this is why this message is coming. Jesus wants us to trust him with our future. Not trust other things. Now there are those who say this will never happen. Well, that's 1 Peter 3, 4. And he says, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they are from the beginning. That's what they say. Well, Listen, there's all kinds of people That make predictions For instance, there was, there was a group of people At one time The Swiss had 90% Of all the watches made In the United States All over the world really the Swiss, When you had a Swiss watch You really had some And one of their, one of their uh, uh, leaders Or one of their engineers Came up and said Hey, look, I've got a way To make a digital watch And they said no, I ain't the way we make watches. We aren't going to do that. So he left. He started a little country, a little company that maybe you heard of it before. It's called Texas Instruments. And they had to lay off over 10,000 people. There's also a, a Kodak had the, had the market on all taking pictures. And and uh, one of their guys came to him one time and said, "Hey, look, I got a new way of making pictures." What is that? He well, you put, uh, here's what you do. You take uh, carbon and you make carbon with it. No, we don't want to do that. That's not the way we do. it. He went and got 10 of his friends to loan him $100,000. They started a little company called Xerox and put a, put a hold on so many things that we've got going on today. There was also another guy by the name of Steve Ballmer who his, he's, he was a financial guru, and he said, there is no way the iPhone is going to get any share of the market. <laughs> Fifteen years later, two billion had been sold. Jesus is coming. Like the disciples, our responsibility is to trust what Jesus said and to trust him with our future and remain faithful to him until the end. Philippians says this, it says this in, in, in 2, 15, 16, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain and labored in vain. It also says this in Hebrews, it says, Therefore, uh, we also, uh, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which that was chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance with the race that sets before us. And verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us do that. I'm telling you, if you trust in the word of God, if you go to the word of God and you trust it and you trust it and trust it, I'm telling you what God will do to apply that word into our lives. It's what we need to do. If you're here today and you've never come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then what a great day that would be. And for us, what a joy that would be for us to do that. To simply say that we had a little hand and, you coming to know the Lord. That's what we hope and pray for. Maybe you're not, maybe you're going through all kinds of stuff and having a hard time trying to hold your head up. Well, this is where Jesus came. He came to let you know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you know, the peace, and some of you just maybe be saying, well, you know, Lee, all I am really want is peace. I just like to have some peace in my life. You know, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you. That in me, you may have peace. You don't find it anyplace else. I I don't believe that with all my heart. In me, you'll find peace. The world, you're going to have trouble. But in me, you have peace. We're going to have a verse of invitation. If you're here tonight, maybe you've been thinking about.